I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14, and we're going to continue our exploration through this gathering in the upper room. And so we've looked at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper when Jesus gathered with his disciples. He announced to them that he would be dying and leaving them, that one of them would betray him, that Peter would deny him. And shortly after that, Judas was given the morsel. He left and went and finished his arrangement with the chief priests to turn Jesus over to them. And so this is still that same evening. They're still in the upper room. And Jesus has been talking to them about what is to come. He has indicated that his hour is at hand and it is now time for him to depart from them. So they have been thinking that Jesus was going to set up his earthly kingdom. Just a few days earlier, they had entered into Jerusalem to much fanfare, to a parade-like atmosphere. They had hailed him. They had shouted, Hosanna. They had put palm branches on the, on the ground for the colt to walk on. And they heralded him into the city. And so many believers and unbelievers alike thought that perhaps this was a time that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, yet Jesus is announcing to them that that's not what's going to happen. I'm going to die. So their world is turned upside down. They are dealing with the unexpected. And Jesus is preparing them not only for his departure, but he is preparing them for the apostolic ministry that he had called them to some three and a half years earlier. When he saw them and told them to follow me. They didn't really understand all that that meant, but they willingly followed after him. And now the time was coming where they would understand in full what it was Jesus was saying to them. Let's look together in John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 15 through 21 today. Uh, Verse 20, actually. Uh, Because of communion and the length of this passage, we'll divide this up into a part one and a part two. So let's read together beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture in four sections today. And we must always be reminded that these individual passages don't exist in a vacuum. They are connected to what was before, and they are connected to what comes after. Jesus has been talking about his departure. He has just told them that if they ask anything in his name, the Father would give it to them, and that they would have incredibly fruitful ministries. They would do greater things than he did. So the first thing we look at in our outline today is his condition. As we look at the promise of the Spirit or the coming of the Spirit, we see, number one, his condition. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, if you look in your Bible, 
verse 15 probably is connected to the previous paragraph, and there is a new heading that begins in verse 16. But virtually every commentator attaches verse 15 and a section that follows after verse 14, and there's a reason for that. In John 13, 34, Jesus introduced to his disciples the expectation of how they were to interact with and relate to one another. He said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What is the standard of love that we are to have for one another? It is the love with which Christ has loved. Remember, at the Lord's table, when they gathered around, there was no one to clean the disciples' feet. So who did so? Jesus did. Jesus gave an example of the kind of love that is required of his followers, that they would love one another, you and I would love one another, that you and I would love our global brothers and sisters in Christ the same way he loves His children. Not the way we think we're entitled to love. Not the way we think someone is deserved to be loved. But Jesus is the example of how we are to love one another. In verse 15, Jesus is introducing the theme of what it means for a disciple to love Him. This is a recurring theme that continues throughout this farewell discourse that began after Judas left. And so as we look at this instruction here, it marks a bit of a beginning point or a little bit of a transition in this farewell discourse because it's introducing somewhat of a new section. This verse might seem out of place, but it actually is directly tied to what Jesus has just said. Jesus said that you are going to do greater things than I did. Now these greater things aren't greater in power, but they're going to be greater in extent. Now, if you remember, Jesus never ministered outside of the region of Palestine, but the apostles were going to go to the remotest parts of the known world, and today Christianity has been shared in virtually every village and every tribe on every continent. So the greater things doesn't mean greater power, but to a greater extent. So the prospect of doing greater things anticipates the need for enabling power. How did Jesus do what He did? Through the power of the Father that was given to Him. How are you and I going to do greater things? Through the power of the Father given to us. So this necessitates the need for the power of God Himself to come to us by His Spirit. And my friend, that is directly connected to the doing of greater things. Loving Him is also connected to asking in His name. He says, if you love Me, then you will obey Me. If you are going to do greater things, then you're going to have to love Me, and you're going to have to obey Me. If you are going to ask Me for anything in My name, and I am going to grant it to you, then you're going to have to love Me and obey Me. The theme of obedience is directly connected to asking for things 
in Jesus' name as he told them he would do so in verses 13 and 14. Now remember, to ask in his name means to ask in accordance to what his name represents. And that mainly is the purposes of God. When you watch preachers on TV, when you listen to radio sermons, you need to be very, very careful how you process the information that you're hearing. Because the ones that says, if you believe it, then God is going to give it to you, probably aren't going to be asking for things that are representative of the name of Christ. What was Christ's chief chief purpose? To fulfill the mission of the Father. Well, you'll hear these people say, I want to obey the Father. I need me a private plane. I need me a mansion. I need me the most luxurious of all cars because after all, I'm a man of God and I don't want to be riding around town in some ratty old car because that would misrepresent the glory of the name of Christ. Well, you can twist this about any way you want to make it sound any way you want, but the truth is, if we are going to ask anything in His name and expect Him to give it to us, then what we ask of Him needs to be representative of what the name of Christ stands for. That is the person of God and the purposes of God. Now, none of the promised greater things will come to those who think they can manipulate Christ or use Him for their own desires. Now, make no mistake about it. Some of these pastors have their private plane, but I can assure you at least from my perspective, God is not really jumping up and down because his people gave this guy a plane so he could jet set wherever he wanted to go in the name of Christ. The greater things will only come by the power of God and will only come when we are asking in accordance with his will. And these things that we ask are connected by love and obedience. Love and obedience are the conduit for doing greater things and receiving what is being asked for in the name of Christ. Let me ask you this question. If you pray and say, in Jesus' name, I want you to give to me the capacity to love this person the way you love them, do you think God is going to honor that prayer? Oh, He absolutely will. That is absolutely in accordance with God's will that we would love others in a way that reflects the love of Christ in us and through us. God, I'm praying that you give to me the capacity to forgive this individual that has hurt me so deeply. Will God honor that prayer? He certainly will. What we ask for is connected by our love for Him and our obedience to Him. Our ability to do greater things is connected to our love for Him and our obedience to Him. Loving Jesus is not emotional, and it's not just based upon our feelings. Loving Jesus is a rational, mental, volitional decision that is driven by commitment. If we are committed to Christ then we are committed to love Him and obey Him. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of a lack of obedience, our love for Him expressed through commitment should compel us 
to obey the things that he is telling us to do. The heart, as we understand it, causes us to give ourselves to something or to someone. Our heart, our center of affection, is what will drive our will and our devotion. Have you ever wondered how somebody can swim two or three miles, bicycle for a hundred miles, and then run a marathon all at the same consecutive time period? Because they have given their will to that task. I promise you, intellectually, I would love to be able to do that. But I can also promise you that that ain't going to happen. Because I have not given my heart to being able to accomplish that. But if we give our heart to the purpose of loving and obeying God, so that what we ask for is consistent with who He is, so that we can do greater things for Him, my friend, God is going to honor that request. In Matthew 22, 37 and 38, we read these words. Jesus saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This encompasses the will and the devotion to put God first above everything and everyone else. This describes one who loves Jesus, who cherishes Him, and willingly attaches Himself to Him and isn't easily swayed away to follow other things. It's one who sacrificially gives all He is and all He has to the cause of Christ. It's one who commits all He is and all He has to serve Christ and His cause. Our obedience to God is centered in our love for Him and these are connected to our doing greater things than asking anything in His name with the expectation that He is going to give it to us. Jesus is saying that doing greater things than asking in His name is connected by love and obedience and love and obedience is connected by, number two in our outline, His coming. Verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. Jesus has just set them up to begin to consider we are going to do greater things than He did. We are going to ask anything in His name, and He is going to give that to us. It precipitates their understanding of the need for help. And this is exactly what Jesus is promising. He is promising that the Spirit, when He comes, He will be our helper. I'm sure you've heard this word before. That word helper in the Greek is the word paraclete. And that means called to the side of another. Visually, we would picture somebody who is struggling to walk down a road. Maybe they're dehydrated, they're limping, they're injured. And so the paraclete, the helper, comes alongside to help them. So this paraclete has a connotation of a helper, a comforter, a counselor, an exhorter, an intercessor, an encourager, and an advocate. It is a very all-encompassing term that describes with great consistency what the Spirit is coming to do and the lives of those He is going to help. We need help in our love and we need help in our obedience to God. Is that true? 
Do you need help in how you love God and how you obey God? Because what you and I need to recognize is that on our own, in our own capacity, you and I do not possess what it takes, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, to love Him or obey Him to the degree that we need to. This is why the Father is going to send us a helper. We can't live the Christian life apart from the helper helping us. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We're not determined enough. We're not anything enough apart from the work of Christ in us that comes through the person of the Holy Spirit. What you and I need to do is we need to recognize that we desperately need the Helper in living out our commitment to Christ. Apart from the Helper helping us, our living out our faith in Christ is relegated to our own strength, our own desires, our own determination, our own motivation. Is that enough for us? It should never be true. It is the helper that gives to us the desire to love and obey. It's the helper that gives us the strength to love and obey. It's the helper that gives us the determination that we need to let go of the sin that so easily entangles us and smears the name of Christ. We need the helper's help to love Him and obey Him. Notice two things about what Jesus says here. Number one, the helper comes from the Father. The Father is the one who gave the Son, and it is the Father who gives the Helper the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. That word another means of the same kind. It does not mean in addition to. Now, this is a very important distinction. It means one just like the other. So, it is the Father who gave the Son. It is the Father who gives the Spirit. Jesus is going to die and He's going to go away. And the Father is going to give another helper of the same kind to give you the enablement to love and obey so that you can do greater things and ask anything in my name so that I can give it to you. The Father is going to give another helper just like Jesus. There's no difference between the two. There's no distinction between the two. This helper just isn't physically visible. Now, I would imagine at this point, the disciples would have said, well, wait a minute, we'd prefer to have you. We like being with you. We like being able to see you. We like being able to talk to you. And Jesus says that's not the Father's plan. The Father's plan is that He's going to give you another helper exactly like me, except you won't be able to see Him. The Father gives to us another personal being, not an impersonal force or power. Very important that we understand what that means. He gives to us a personal being, not an impersonal force or power. We'll flesh that out more in the next couple of sections that we go through. I was flipping through the channels and I saw this show. It's a quote-unquote reality TV show and it caught my attention. 
because I, I knew it was going to be full of um, real hokey stuff. And so I was watching a little bit of this show, and they have these individuals who call themselves, quote-unquote, sacred healers. And these sacred healers have the ability to tap into ancient spirits to guide you and help you in your life in the now. So this one individual was talking about everywhere I am, I just have this certain, and he's doing this with his hand, I just have this certain kind of energy. And they're in this Caribbean-like resort, and all of a sudden the wind blows, and they all go, ooh, there it is, the impersonal force or the power of the wind that was brought by the waving of your hands and the acknowledgement that you've got this kind of mysterious energy. Baloney. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's called the helper. He guides, He teaches, He leads, He convicts, He encourages, He speaks, He teaches, He does exactly what Jesus does, except He does it everywhere, all the time, because He isn't bound by time and space. He is the third person of the Trinity, and He possesses personal traits just like the Father and just like Jesus. Why do we call God the Father? Because we recognize Him as a personal being. Why do we consider ourselves to be the children of God? Because we consider Him to be a personal being. Why do we call Jesus our brother? Because He is a personal being. Why are we considered the bride and the body of Christ? Because He is a personal being. So if that is all true, why would the Father send an impersonal force or an impersonal being that was not exactly like the Father or the Son? He wouldn't. He would not do that. So the Spirit is a personal being who has come alongside to help us in our loving and in our obeying of the Father. Now, the second thing that we notice is this. He will be with us forever. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He arrives on the public scene at about 30. He begins to teach and perform all these miracles. Three and a half years after that, initiation into the world, Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried in a tomb. And He's never to be seen again by the lost world. But the Spirit will come and He will come forever. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus died. The second person of the Trinity is gone. But the second person of the Trinity and the person of Jesus who came in the form of a man, God incarnate, vanished from the earth after his death, and we know that he was resurrected and ascended back into heaven. So the presence of the Spirit is always going to be with us. There is nowhere that we can go where the Helper is not going to be with us. Nowhere you can go where the Helper is not present with us. Isn't that good to know? You can go 35,000 feet up in an airplane, the Helper is there. You can get in a rocket ship and go to the moon, the Helper is there. You can get in the deepest underwater craft there is, and the Spirit is there. Wherever we go, He is with us. This is why Jesus was able to say at the conclusion of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. Why could Jesus say that? Because He is in the Father, the Father is in Him. He is in the Spirit, the Spirit is in Him. The Spirit is in the Father, the Father is in the Spirit. They are one and the same. And Jesus is always going to be with us because the Spirit is always going to be with us. The promise of the Spirit is the promise of the continued presence of Christ and the Father with us forever and forever. When the Helper comes, He will always be with us. Now, number three in our outline, we look at His character. We've seen His condition, we've seen His coming, and now we see His character. Verse 17, That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Jesus calls Him the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth is the very same truth that Christ is. Now if you look up in chapter 14, just a few verses in front of where we are, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. What does that mean? That means that when Jesus says, I am the truth, He says, I am the truth of God. When He calls the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that means He is the truth of God. The Helper is the very person of God. The Helper communicates truth. And we'll look at this a little bit more in depth a little bit later in this passage. He will lead the disciples into all truth by teaching them. Now, do you think the Holy Spirit is going to say, well, i got a bone to pick with that father and that son deal because I don't think it ought to be that way. I really think it should be more like this. Is that going to happen? Absolutely not. The Spirit is going to speak exactly as the Son spoke because the Son spoke exactly what the Father told Him to speak. Absolute consistency between what the Father and the Son and the Spirit are going to teach. The Helper liberates us with truth by completing us, by completing for us our spiritual transformation at the moment of our salvation. As soon as we gave our life to Christ and were made new, the Spirit completed our spiritual transformation even though nothing looked different to us. It is the Spirit who continues our spiritual transformation through our sanctification while we are on the earth. So the Helper is truth. The Helper speaks truth. He communicates God's truth to us and He liberates us by the truth of God by completing in us what God began at the moment of our salvation, positionally in Christ, and practically as we live out our life on this earth, striving to honor Him, to obey Him, and to love Him. Notice two things about this. This spirit of truth. Number one, the world cannot receive Him. World here refers to those that have rejected Christ, that exist outside of that spiritual, relational realm. They have no relationship with God because they have not come to the Father through the Son, and Jesus has already said that I am the only way to the Father. So the world cannot receive Him. This is what John said to us 
in the prologue of his gospel, John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. These people looked at the very face of God and said, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to say those things? How do you have the audacity to do such a thing on the Sabbath? They did not know Him. Just as the world did not recognize or receive Jesus during His earthly ministry, the world will not recognize or receive the Holy Spirit when He comes. Now, apart from the awakening of the Spirit in us, making our dead spirits alive to Him, we, the world, would never know who the Spirit really is. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, I'm sure you've heard of people who talk about being spiritual. Well, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm spiritual in that I recognize that there is a higher being than I, but that higher being can't be constrained to any individual religion. So where is this spirit then? Where is this greater being? Oh, it's everywhere. It's in the trees. It's, it's in nature. It's in the animals. It's out there. I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. Well, you know what that is, don't you? It's a man-made attempt to satisfy an innate understanding of a being that is greater than me, but I'm going to reject that that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Spiritualism is simply acknowledging a spirit world without acknowledging the truth about who is the Father and how one can know the Father. The spirits in the world and nature and animals in the air are not the Holy Spirit of God. They are not pursuing the person of God. And we need to be very careful what we think when we hear people talk about generic God or generic spiritualism. You can listen to any manner of ungodly music and there's references to God, or to heaven, or to spirit. We need to be very careful about what we accept as being consistent with what we believe to be true as expressed to us through the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit is the Helper. He is the one who has come from the Father. He speaks, leads, guides, and teaches just as the Father and the Son did. The world does not know and love Jesus, therefore... They do not know and they cannot know the Spirit apart from His awakening them from their spiritual death. Second thing that we notice about this is the contrast. The believer knows the Holy Spirit. Second part of verse, or third part of verse 17. But you know Him because He abides with you and He will be in you. Now this gets to be a little bit of the wishy-washy place for some Christians. The Spirit is never, ever, ever going to lead us to do something that is inconsistent with the clear teaching of God's Word. Not going to happen. 
If we say, well, the Spirit is leading me to have an affair with my spouse, that ain't the Spirit of God. Well, the Spirit is leading me to exact revenge on that individual that hurt me so bad, that's not the Spirit of God. We need to be very, very careful about what we say the Spirit is leading us or teaching us to do. Jesus says you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Just as a father has always existed, so has the Spirit. The Spirit isn't a new part of the Trinity. The Spirit has always been. He was active in creation. He was acting and leading and guiding the saints of old in the believing community of the Old Testament. He was present in a very general sense. But soon, Jesus is saying here, the Spirit who is there and who has always been there is going to be in you. What does that mean? Well, in the same way that we are in Christ, joined with Him for all eternity, the Spirit is going to be in us, in believers. He will indwell our spirit. This is the incredible doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to be with you and in you, He's not talking about two different experiences with the Holy Spirit. The charismatic community teaches, well, the Spirit is with us, but for that select group who really, really know God, then the Holy Spirit is in you, and if the Spirit is in you, then you're going to speak in tongues, and you're going to have this unknown prayer language, and God's going to give you the gift of healing. But Jesus isn't talking about two different experiences with the Holy Spirit. He's saying the same thing two different ways. Just as the Holy Spirit has always been, just as the Holy Spirit has always been with the believing community, He will continue to do so, but it's going to get amped up a little bit because He's going to be in you, dwelling within you. That way, He will always be with you. That's why we can't go anywhere that the Spirit is not. The Bible speaks of a singular indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You see the distinction here? Either you have the Spirit indwelling you, or you do not. If you do, you are a child of the King. If you do not, then you are not. There isn't a second experience that is taught in the context of Scripture from, front to be, from beginning to end. If you take a singular passage on its own, out of context, you can make it say virtually anything you want it to say. So the Holy Spirit, God Himself, is going to indwell us I'm going to dwell you, them, talking to the disciples. Not just with you, he is going to be in you. That brings us to number four in outline. His company. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. What an incredible picture that is. You think about an orphan, what comes to your mind when you think about an orphanage or you think about an orphaned child? 
I believe Jesus picked this word intentionally because I believe this is exactly how the disciples felt. We feel like orphans because you're telling us that you're leaving and we can't go with you. Their world was turned completely upside down. They had a feeling of lostness. They had a feeling of hopelessness. They probably had a feeling of abandonment. You can go visit an orphanage and you can watch them run and play and have these smiling faces. But I don't know that an orphan really and truly ever fully gets over those feelings that they had of lostness and hopelessness and abandonment. They may be deeply loved by surrogate parents, but there's still that little thing that makes them wonder why. What happened? I believe this is how the disciples felt. I believe that they're going to feel this even to a greater degree when they see him on the cross and they watch his body laid in the tomb. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? Jesus says, I will come to you. Now, this most directly speaks to Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, but those are really very brief, and they have a very specific purpose in mind. And this is why Jesus is telling them that the Father is going to send another helper just like me, and he will be with you forever. Now, there's four benefits to this personal presence, his company with us. Number one, we have help. Think about how dependent little children are on their parents. Mike and Lindsay, bless their hearts. They're on the verge of experiencing the joy of parenthood. And they will begin to experience firsthand just how dependent that little life is on them. Most especially Lindsay. As she is going to feed this baby. Care for this baby. As Mike and Lindsay give themselves to this baby. Little baby can't walk. Can't talk, can't clean itself, can't feed itself, doesn't know right from wrong, good from bad. They need to be taught all that stuff. That doesn't change when they get 10 or 12. Children are dependent upon their parents. Even young adults are dependent upon their parents for wisdom, for guidance, for encouragement. That's why when you hear someone say, you're always going to be a parent, that's exactly right. You will always feel like a parent, even when you're 80, and your kids have their own kids, and perhaps those kids have their kids. You could be a great grandparent and still feel like I'm a parent. I've got some responsibility for this life. Well, we need help, right? In the context of what Jesus is saying... This abiding presence is going to help us do what? It's going to help us love Him and obey Him so that we can do greater things for Him and whatever we ask in His name, He's going to give to us. We enjoy this wonderful privilege, God in us, to help us be 
who and what God has called us to be, helping us to live the Christian life, helping us in a way that reflects His power, His purposes, in a way that celebrates His promises and the sufficiency of His presence and provision in all that we face in life. No matter how hard it can be, no matter how overwhelming the circumstances might feel to us, His presence is always there to help us. He's promised to come to us. Jesus has. And He has by coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Number two, we will see Him. Verse 19a. Jesus says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Again, this speaks directly to his resurrection. Jesus did not appear to the non-believing community after his death. He only did so to those that he would disclose for the purpose of bringing them into relationship with him. For example, on the road to Emmaus when he appeared and walked and talked and explained everything to them. But for for the world's perspective, Jesus was gone. They're not going to see him again. But he says to his disciples, you will see me. And by experience, they will continue to see him through the personal presence of God inside inside of them. Although you and I don't see him today, physically, we see him when we see God at work in us and around us. When we see God working, we're seeing Jesus. When we see God encouraging, we're seeing Jesus. When we see God comforting, we're seeing Jesus. We don't see Him physically, but we see the manifestation of His presence in the work that the Spirit is doing on behalf of the Father and the Son. Number three, we will live. Verse 19c, Jesus says, Because I live, you will live also. Jesus didn't stay dead, did He? He was put into the tomb, and on the third day He rose again, and He appeared to them, and it proves that He is alive forevermore. He is eternal. He holds eternal life in His hands. And just as He lived after His death, they will live because Jesus says, I am in you. Number four, we are in Him. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What day is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the day of his resurrection. When he had been killed on the cross, when he was laid in the tomb, and on the third day appeared to them, they had no doubt that he was in the Father. Because bringing someone back from the dead can only be attributed to a miracle that the Father would perform. Jesus says, On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You and I are in Christ. He is in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Just as He lives eternally, they would live eternally, just as you and I will live eternally. Since we are in Christ, that is what is true for us. We have been made His righteousness. We have been made His holiness. We have been made joint heirs as adopted children. We have His power. We have His victory. We have His protection. We have His provision as the children of God because He is in us 
through the person of the Holy Spirit. Let me summarize what Jesus has said in these verses. Jesus has promised to ask the Father to send another helper, the Spirit of Truth, to be with his disciples forever. They should be encouraged. This paraclete lives with them and will be in them, and they will never be alone. Now, you can imagine the response of the disciples. Well, this is great, but what about you? And Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. I will show myself only to my disciples or to those because of my self-disclosure. They will also see me. Because I live, you will live also. I am in my Father, you are in me, and I in you. Now, it's important to recognize that at this point in this discourse, the disciples didn't really fully understand all that Jesus was saying. But as we'll look at, I believe in verse 26, he says the Spirit will come and teach you all things. He will bring back to your memory all that I have told you. And then the light will turn on for them, and then they will say, ah, now I get it. But for you and I today who don't live in the immediacy of the, of the death of Christ, we live standing on the promises that God has made that he has given to us the helper, the spirit of truth, who will be with us forever to help us love him and obey him so that you and I can do greater things for him and ask whatever we wish in his name, confident that he will give it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for what it means to us that you are not an impersonal being who has left us on on our own to wander, but you are a personal God who has given us yourself in the person of the Holy Spirit to live within us, to be with us forever. God, I pray that you would help our finite minds grasp the incomprehensible truth of that to some greater degree and marvel at what a great God you are. Thank you, Father, that you've not left us alone to live this Christian life, but you're with us every step of the way so that we can honor and please you with this ongoing work of sanctification that began the day of our salvation. Would you be pleased with our progress? Would you... Continue to motivate us to serve you more fully. Would you see in us a life and a commitment that reflects the depth of our love for you? God, we pray that you would continue to show us that you are our everything, that apart from you, we really don't have anything. I pray that you would be our anchor, that you and your word would be the anvil of our life. And as the world hammers away, we would stand secure knowing that we belong to you, that you are in us, and we are in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.